You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you, Father, for the last three years that we have spent examining, studying, thinking through, listening, asking questions, and just getting to know Jesus. Father, it has been such a privilege and such an honor um, to lead your sheep, your flock, your church, your family, your bride through this gospel. So, Father, today as we enter into this text one final time, I pray that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit that you would empower us and, 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 and enlighten us, illuminate the text in front of us, make it come alive in our minds and in our hearts and cause it to do much work deep within us. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of transformation and a work of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would etch onto our minds and our hearts what it means to be disciples who give a bold witness to the power of the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb. And what it means to give that witness in such an authentic way through the way that we live our lives, that, that our lives become just an open book of sacrificial worship to you who sacrificed yourself for us. I pray that you would reveal any spiritual hindrances and any sinful devices or roots within us that would hold us back or that would become barriers for us being more authentic and matured worshipers of you. So God, I pray that you would give your spirit to that effect, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, and that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight, because you are our rock, our redeemer, our Lord. Help us to surrender to you. Help these words to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. In this final passage today in Luke's gospel, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. We'll be in verses 48 through 53. And in this final section of text for us this morning, Jesus calls his disciples to be his witnesses. He also promises to send the Holy Spirit to them, to empower them, and then he blesses them one final time as he leaves them worshiping him with great joy. That's the big overview of what's taking place in this passage. So turn to Luke 24, 48 through 53. Look at it with me. Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And this last passage in this gospel, uh, for me, is basically kind of a surreal ending uh, to our three-year study. And honestly, it's been a bit hard for me to cope with the fact that all the time that we've spent walking through this gospel, all the time that we've spent walking with Jesus, uh, examining his life, his ministry, his death, his, his resurrection, that, that that time for us as a church family is actually coming to a close. I had the privilege of walking with uh, Jesus for 17 years, almost 17 years. And for me, the last three years uh, have been at times super difficult and painful. Uh, and then uh, there's been real sweet times. And in fact, I would say this for me, the last three years uh, because of this study have probably been some of the sweetest years that I've had of following Jesus as, as we've lived in this text. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if many of you would make the same connection as I do. My only hope is that the Lord would help you to make the same connection of what it's like to literally live in the same text, verse by verse, every week, and to constantly be in prayer and study over what God is revealing to us and wants to speak to us weekly. Um, that's what it's been like for me, wrestling with my own sin, uh, walking through seasons of life with all of you as we seek to follow Jesus in this crazy idea of planting uh, what I would hope, what we all hope would become a thriving gospel-centered church family of gospel communities uh, who are engaged in the mission of growing disciples who glorify God. I mean, as we have walked that out over the last three years, the burden of that and the weight of that and the joy of that all at the same time has just been an experience for me that, again, just kind of feels surreal as we come uh, to the end of this study. And I think the question that has burdened me or that has loomed in my heart um, as I studied this final portion of Luke's gospel is, like, what is God's final word to us out of this gospel? Like, what is God's last instruction to us from this text as we examine Jesus' return to heaven? And I have to admit that, that for me, this question has probably haunted me, so to speak, for the last few weeks as this, as this portion of text has loomed in my heart and in my mind and as I've labored to shepherd among all of you amidst the various seasons of life that every one of us um, has been experiencing. So Friday morning uh, for me this last week as I sat in my study, honestly feeling a bit emotionally drained, um, emotionally overwhelmed, um, spent uh, from, from my week of work, um, 
spent, I think, even just from a lack of sleep. Uh, sometimes when I go to sleep at night, I have people's faces in my mind and stories of what's happening in people's lives. And the scriptures are clear that part of a shepherd's job and part of a pastor's job is to be responsible for the souls of people. So a friend of mine this week as a bunny trail to just juxtapose or, or, or give you a contrast. A friend of mine this week was just sharing with me um, the difference between what I now do in shepherding ministry and what I used to do in drywall ministry. I said that purposely, drywall ministry, because even if I was a drywaller, there's still a ministry aspect to that, right? But the difference between doing drywall and, and, and being a pastor is that in drywall, you're just, you're trying to make those walls look pretty and perfect. Those, those walls are inanimate objects. That, that's your sole responsibility. When I walk into somebody else's house or when I go home, I might look at people's walls and go, man, I, I could have done a much better job than that. But I'm not going to lose sleep that night over whether that wall looks good or not. Like, I don't give a rip, you know, what the wall looks like. And even if I'm responsible for that wall, I'm not going to lose sleep over what that wall looks like. You know why? Because the wall is most likely still going to be there in the morning to work on, number one. And number two, if the stinking wall burns down and is no longer there the next morning, it's not a big deal. Just get a big insurance check, start over again, right? Much different kind of work than shepherding. And so as I awoke on Friday morning, spent, tired, after losing sleep, um, found myself in my study in that place, praying, asking the Lord for, for clarity and for energy. And, and honestly, just asking him, like, can you just give me one more sermon, one more word from this text that uh, would be um, faithful and helpful for your flock? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're gathered here and you've trusted in Jesus, and if you either are either A, calling this your church family and home, or thinking about it, uh, then you don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus. He's your chief shepherd. He's the master shepherd. I am but an under shepherd. My job is just to be faithful and to feed as faithfully as I can. And so as I prayed, asking God to, um, to clarify this text, um, I, spent, I spent a number of hours just communing with the Lord, asking him to examine my heart, to apply the text to my heart first, clear my heart of my own identity issues, fixate my hope on Christ alone, to clarify this text to me so that it made some sense, to purify my motives, what motivates me to say the things that I do, what motivates me to preach what I'm about to preach, asking the Lord to purify those motives and to fill me with the power of his spirit so that I might witness one more time to the hope of Christ in our midst. Like This is the call that God gave me, right, as I study. And as I studied and as I prayed and as I wrote, uh, wrote uh, there was one single thought that struck me with absolute force and like pure clarity. There's a thought. 
from this passage, the truth of this passage is that God is calling us to be his witnesses. He's calling us to be his witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our spirit-empowered lives of worship. Let me just stop for a minute. Everybody take your phones and put them down. I want you to think about what this statement actually means. If God is calling you to be his witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through your spirit-empowered life of worship, then what does that imply about the way you walk out of here today when this message is over? What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to be a witness to the power and the sufficiency of Christ himself as the Lord and the king of your life in such a deep and authentic way that your life is now offered up to Christ as an act of sacrificial worship? One of the books that I've been reading this week talking about the work of pastoral ministry. And he was talking, the author is talking about the work of Christ in his sheep, through his sheep, and the work of priests in the Old Testament and shepherds with their sheep. When you think about the image of shepherds with their sheep, and one of the main purposes of a shepherd with a sheep is to feed them so that they continue to grow and become spotless and spotless and unblemished so that they then could be offered on a sacrificial altar. Doesn't that tie together with the work that we are called to do with one another? I may carry the mantle and title of pastor and shepherd, but there is a responsibility among the flock to shepherd and pastor one another. And so look at your wife, if you have a wife, or look at your friend, or look at your husband, or look at your child around the table with you. It is your responsibility, just as much as it is mine, to feed one another to the point that we offer our lives as an act of sacrificial worship to our Savior. Like, there's no joke in that whatsoever. But the problem, I think, in Christianity is that we think it's a joke. Or we don't take it seriously. Look at verse 48. <coughs> verse 48, Jesus calls his disciples witnesses. <coughs> what does Jesus mean when he says, you are witnesses of these things? What does he mean when he says that? What would it look like for you and I to slow down long enough and examine the food that's on our plate? Just scarfing it down and running out the door back to the things that we were doing before we walked in here. 
What does it mean when Jesus says you are witnesses of these things? You think of the plate of food that you're being served right now from the word. You have a plate of food that has four specific portions of food on it. You and I can either throw that plate of food on the floor and trample on it, or we can pull that plate of food closer to us and delight in every bite. What does it mean when Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things? In the immediate context of Luke's gospel, Jesus is simply referring to his disciples as eyewitnesses to the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. It means that, that anyone who is a disciple of Jesus is a person who shares his or her authentic, authentic, say it again, authentic experience of Christ. It means that anyone who is a disciple of Jesus is a person who shares his or her authentic experience of Christ. Now, there's also a broader meaning to this word witness in the scriptures. Acts 1.8, Luke unpacks more details about how Jesus uses this word when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus says this, he's simply saying that his disciples will be his martyrs. Martyr is actually the word, the Greek word that is being used in both these contexts. When we think witness, we think eyewitness. We think somebody who gives a testimony of something they've experienced and seen. And that's half true. The other half, because of the word that Jesus uses here and that Luke uses to record it, is the word martyr. It changes the meaning. It broadens our understanding of what it means to be Jesus' witnesses. It ties together the concepts of experiencing and sharing the presence of Christ authentically, like authentically being in the presence of Christ, experiencing that, and sharing that authentic experience with others. Ties together that one side of it to the other aspect of what it means to witness to this aspect of suffering to the death. Americans are spoiled. If this is the last message I get to preach, Americans are spoiled. We don't like the idea of suffering. We don't like the idea of death. We want the good life, right? We want things comfy. And what we seem to forget is that those deep longings deep down inside to have the good life, they're actually connections to the gospel that points to the hope of heaven, the hope in Christ, that the good life that you and I long for is not available here, it's available there. And so we live with that urgency, right? <coughs> what else would motivate someone to be willing to give a witness to share their authentic experience and life lived in Christ with others to the point that they would suffer for it and even die for it. 
You've got to remember that every disciple in this passage, every disciple in this passage dies horribly, horrifyingly, painfully, because they refused to give in to the pressure of the world around them. They refused to be pressed or coaxed into into not proclaiming God to others. This, This call to being witnesses for Christ in this passage. It's a call to share our own personal experience of the presence and the work of Jesus with other people to the point that we would suffer and even die for Jesus as he has done for us. It's to love Christ the way that he has loved you or I. It's to love one another in the same ways that we've been loved, sacrificially. This final call in this passage, it's it's a call to cross-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming lifestyles of worship. That's the call in this passage. And that's either a joke of a call or it's something that we absolutely ignore or it's something that radically affects our lives. The question that continued to run through my mind as I studied and runs through my head now even is how? Like this is a massive call, right? If this is something we got to take seriously, this is something we can't just shove off, if this is something that is uh, not a joke, if that's what this final call is, then how? How do we become the kind of worshiping witnesses that God calls us to be? How do we become that kind of people? How do we become cross-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming worshipers of God? How do we become that kind of people? The answer to that question, I think, in this passage is found in Jesus' promise to send the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit to clothe his disciples with the power of the indwelling presence of God himself, which brings us to point number two. Point number two, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples in verse 49, right? (coughs) Like this is an extraordinary promise, really. It's also an extraordinary revelation of the triune nature of the Godhead at work. And in fact, some commentators say that this is the clearest example of the triune Godhead at work in all of Scripture. (coughs) I would agree that definitely in all of Luke, maybe in all of Scripture, that argument's for another day. But you just look at this. In this passage, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in triune work, working together in harmony to bring about this call which we are receiving today. <laughs> God the Father has already promised all throughout the scriptures to send his spirit. Jesus has reminded his disciples of this promise throughout the gospel of Luke. And then as he ascends to heaven, he actually sends the Holy Spirit. And then the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem, the book of Acts, 
actually receives the Holy Spirit who comes and fills all of them with his powerful presence. This is the triune Godhead at work seeking to fill us with the very powerful presence of God himself. And the word that Luke uses for power in both this context and in the context of the book of Acts is this Greek word dunamis. Means dynamite or dynamic. In other words, here's what God doesn't do God doesn't promise to give us the power of a firecracker, He promises to give us the power of dynamite. He promises to give us His very own indwelling presence, which is more like dynamite in comparison to a firecracker. When faced with the choice to either take a firecracker or a stick of dynamite, I know every dude in this room is going to choose a stick of dynamite first. Why? Because it makes big boom, <laughs> right? It's more fun. Blow up more stuff with dynamite than you do firecracker. So when God calls us to become Christ-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming disciples who worship God with our lives, he doesn't just give us a call, but he also gives us the backup for that call. He doesn't just call us to it and then go like, ha, have fun with that. Good luck. Sucks to be you. Do this all by yourself. It's not the kind of God that God is. When he calls us to that extreme call of a life of worship, <clears throat> he does it alongside of giving us a promise that we can trust for sure. This is main theme of Luke is that we would know and trust for sure, for certain. You can be certain that God has promised to give you his spirit. You can be certain that God has not promised to give you a firecracker. You can be certain that God has promised to give you a stick of dynamite. His very own power is what he's promised to give you. You can be sure and certain that if that's what he's promised to give you, and if you are following him, that's what he will give you as he calls you to walking this walk. That's what you can rest in and trust in and believe in. What more could you ask for? What more could you ask for than the very presence of God himself in your life? Empowering you and I to be his martyrs, witnesses. Can't think of anything else I could ask for, which is kind of what makes our next point so humbling. Point three, Jesus blesses his disciples as he leaves. Verses 50 through 51, kind of wild, kind of crazy. <clears throat> like, like this moment for me in verses 50 through 51 uh, is kind of like that moment when the, cloten, the, 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 the curtain closes the last time, like when that curtain comes down for the final time after the final act of the best movie you've ever seen. 
I remember seeing The Passion of the Christ when it came out in the theaters for the very first time. And I'll, I'll never forget the final moments of that movie. The absolute silence, right? And the, um, the, the emotions in the room, the awe in the room amidst some of the sniffling and the weeping as the movie came to an end. If you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. The horror of the crucifixion of Christ was so powerful in that movie, wasn't it? It's like dynamite, wasn't it? It's powerful. Equally as powerful as that picture is, is this final curtain closing picture of Christ ascending into the clouds of heaven as he blesses his disciples one last time. Here's the reason why it's so striking and powerful. We think about it from a different point of view for a second. You have somebody come visit you at your house, have a meal with them. Oftentimes it's common that when they leave your home and you give them a hug or maybe a kiss on the cheek, depending on whether you're into holy kisses or not, give them a hug, right? I love you. God bless you as you go. Like, be careful driving. Right? This is, we, we, we do this. This is part of the normal pattern and liturgy of our lives. We do this in church as well. At the end of our gathering, we say something similar to, hey, thanks for gathering with us today. Um, God bless you as you go. Hope to see you next week. It's a blessing, right? Blessing each other as we go. <clears throat> Can't wait to see you again. This is our way of blessing other people. This, this final word of blessing in this passage is really, is really a, a reminder of God's kindness and generosity. This is Jesus being kind and generous towards his disciples. And really this is what he does towards us as he calls us to become cross-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming worshipers. And the reason is because we've been blessed by the dynamite presence of the Holy Spirit, the dynamite presence of the power of God himself. Like, like the question for us is like, what do we do with this call to witness? What do, we, what do we do with this promise of power? What do we do with this final blessing of Jesus? Maybe start by asking, what did the disciples do? What did they do in our passage? But these disciples worshipped Jesus. And in fact, the, the final verse, let me just read it. Luke tells us that the disciples worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is continually gathering with the family of Jesus, continually in the place of worship with joy, worshipping God. Doesn't this, doesn't this seem to be like the most appropriate ending to the end of this movie? That as Jesus goes, he would leave behind a handful of man, disciples that kept getting it wrong, right? That just needed the empowerment of God in their lives to start getting it right. I mean, he's leaving the, the responsibility of <clears throat> planting the worldwide church in the hands of 11 men because one of them killed himself, right? Leaving, leaving that in the hands of like 11 men to, to do, who just like, what, 
few days earlier had, had denied Christ. I mean, there was a mess of a bunch of people. And he's leaving this in the hands of them. And isn't it appropriate then that in the midst of that, their response would be worship. And, and isn't that the most appropriate call that God would give us then? Is to become authentic worshipers of Jesus. <clears throat> and the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 <clears throat> says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God. So how is Paul making that appeal? He's making that appeal based upon the mercy of God. Paul doesn't say, hey, I appeal to you based upon my title. I appeal to you based upon the suffering that I faced. I appeal to you based upon the great theology that I have. I appeal to you based upon all the books. I No, none of that. I appeal to you based upon the mercy of God. In light of God's mercy, I am urging you, Paul says... Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This next week, as you walk this out, just ask yourself, is that word I'm about to say good, acceptable, or perfect? Oh, I should keep my mouth shut until Jesus cleanses my heart. All right? Is that thing I'm about to look at on my computer good, acceptable, or perfect? Oh, no. Okay. Crash the computer with my hammer maybe. Okay? I don't, maybe that's what you need to do, right? Is this habit I'm getting ready to engage in? Is this way I'm getting ready to speak to my spouse or my children? Is it good, acceptable, or perfect? You see the connection here? Like, this is a call to worship. That's what this final text is. It's called to worship God by becoming cross-caring, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming people who've been blessed by the very dynamite presence of the Spirit of God himself. He's calling us to be witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our Spirit-empowered lives of sacrificial worship. And the question for you and I is this. How Will you and I answer that call? How will you and I answer that call? Do you receive it as a joke? Do you receive it as something that is not that big of a deal? Or do you hear this call and does your heart come alive? And do you begin to come alive towards God because of the work of His Spirit with the motivation to be the worshiper that God has called us to be. Like, will you and I leave here today and go back to our worship disorders? That's the question. Will you leave here today and go back to drinking poisonous water from filthy glasses? We go back to playing games with our sin in the shadow of the cross where Christ died for us. Will you go back to chasing the momentary pleasures of this life? Will we go back to conformity to this world where we chase money, possessions, experiences, friendships, romance, status? Will we leave here? Will we go back to chasing the high 
the intoxicating high of those pursuits? Or will we answer this final call of God in our lives in Luke's gospel? Will we, will we give our lives to Jesus as our spiritual act of worship? Will you become a cross-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming people or person who has been blessed by the dynamite presence of the power of the Spirit of God himself who is alive and at work among you? If God is calling us to be witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our spirit-empowered lives of worship, then the question is, how will you and I answer that call? It's not a, how will you do it? The question is, will you and I do that? Will you and I answer that call? This is a call to leave the prison cell of slavery to your worship disorders and never go back. Never go back. Why would the Jews ever want to go back to Egypt? Why would you and I ever want to go back to our worship disorders? Help us answer that call of God on our lives from this message I put together like three simple, short action steps that I think are based and rooted in this text as well as other texts that I've listed for you on your notes and on the screen. Let me run through them real fast. Number one, give your life as an act of sacrificial worship. Ties to Romans 12, 1 through 2. God is calling us to be witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our spirit-empowered lives of worship, right? Worship is all about giving yourself to something or someone. You may be giving yourself to a relationship or the pursuit of more money or possessions or sexual sin or the pursuit of worldly status or laziness or anger or control or bitterness or overworking or comfort or overspending. Whatever you've been giving yourself to is what you worship. It's what you sacrifice your life for. It's what you give your entire being for. God's call in your life is to give yourself to him completely because he gave himself to you. And the question is, is will you give yourself to the Lord as an act of living in sacrificial worship? Will you do that? Number two, ask God to empower you with the spirit. Acts 2, 1 through 13 is a great connecting place as you see these disciples go back to Jerusalem and wait and ask for the Spirit. Once again, God is calling us to be witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our Spirit-empowered lives of worship. And what that means is that we got to ask God to empower us with the infilling presence of His Spirit. So here's what we often believe. We often believe that we would just have the strength to carry on. Like we often believe that, man, I would be able to keep moving forward if my spouse did that, my kids did this, my boss did that, my car looked like this, I look like that. <laughs> right? We often believe that we 
We would have the strength to carry on if we just had more money, better relationships, bigger houses, better paying jobs, more well-mannered kids, another car, better drugs. We often think that if we could just change our circumstances in the here and now, if we could change those circumstances, that we could just make another day, another week, another month, another year, if we could change those circumstances. The truth is, all those things are firecrackers. in comparison to the stick of dynamite that God has offered you and I. The question is, so will you stop chasing fireworks and begin chasing dynamite? Ask God to empower you with the Spirit. Number three, witness boldly to everyone you meet. This ties to Acts 4, 23-31. Disciples have just been in prison for witnessing the power of God in their lives. They get out and they go back to a house where a bunch of other people have been praying for them. And they don't go, hey, get me the nearest bus so I can get out of town. They go, let's pray some more for some more empowerment. Let's pray some more for some more Holy Spirit to drop on us. Let's pray some more for some more dynamite so that we can get back out there and preach Christ boldly. That's what they do. <laughs> I'm looking for the nearest bus out of town. And they're praying for more Holy Spirit. Make us more bold in our witness. Help us to die well for you, not help us to live better now. That's why that book, Best Life Now, is such a crock. All right, God is calling us to be witnesses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through our spirit-powered lives of worship. What this means is that we must open our mouths and speak. You can't stay silent. We must open our mouths and speak boldly about what he has done in our lives. And, listen... Our lives must match the words that come out of our mouths. You could tie that to James as well if you'd like to. So the question is, will you witness boldly to everyone you meet with your words and your lifestyle? How will you answer this final call to be witnesses for God to the person and the work of Jesus Christ through your spirit-empowered life of worship. How will you answer this final call? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the last three years in this book. I thank you for the gift and the privilege of being able to preach this last message from this book. Thank you for the gift of being able to stand in this pulpit and to proclaim and give testimony to the power of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus in our lives. But I pray that you would cement this call into our hearts and minds and help us to be a people 
who respond to your call to be witnesses to the point of suffering and even death, that we would continue to grow and become cross-carrying, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-proclaiming, life-sacrificing worshipers of you. Pray, God, that you would give us your spirit, that the dynamic and dynamite presence of your spirit would be alive in each of us. It should help us to give our lives back to you because you gave your life for us. Help us to love you because you loved us so well. Pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.